I am in Ephesians still, and uh, Pastor Colleen preached last week. Those of you who are here, was that good? I'll tell you, I think you get the better portion when you have her. That's all I got to say. This is part four. Yes, y'all can tell her I said that, so yeah, I get extra brownie points for that. So uh, today I'm talking about how God can use you, and, and I think that's important, but I want to kind of take you back in time. Uh, some of you a long time ago, some of you not so long ago. Uh, in high school and college, remember the yearbooks that would come out? And then they had like these columns of most likely to whatever. Uh, so I, I pulled up a couple of them. There's a reason I'm going here. Uh, but I had to, this one kind of cracked me up when I was looking it up. Most likely to take over the world. Right? <laughs> most likely to buy a souvenir from every city. Uh, go missing. I don't know if that's good or not, but... Uh, this guy looks like he fits it, most likely to oversleep. He looks like he just got up for that picture, uh, eat everyone's leftovers, bring you coffee in the morning. Where is this guy at? He needs to go to our coffee station, right? Uh, but anyway, I was thinking of that. This is the one that I really uh, wanted to look at because how many of you remember the most likely to succeed couple that was in it? Was that anybody in here where you were the most likely to succeed? No? Uh, there you go. Christian, no. Robert's raising his hands. He got both of them up. No, I'm just kidding. You know, you were? Oh, Stephanie was. So I got to watch what I'm saying now because they always, they always got like the best looking people for that, right? So I wasn't in there. Best sportsmanship? What does that mean? You like cheered for the other team? I don't know. Most spirited? Must have been filled with the Holy Spirit or something. I don't know about that one either. But this one cracked me up. I'm the best all around the best all around. What are you good at? Well, I'm really good at this. Well, I'm the best all around, so I got you beat. Anyway, I think those things puffed up some people's head, and, uh, and the reality is most of us don't fit that. Most of us don't fit. As a matter of fact, a lot of success comes from failure. I, I was looking up 45, I'm not going to give you 45 famous failures or we'd be here for a while, uh, but this article had 45 famous failures who became successful people. I'm going to give you just uh, four of them. First one, who is that? Who knows? Thomas Edison. That's a big light bulb <laughs> right there, right? But as he was asked, he said uh, about the many thousands of failures he had when trying to create the light bulb. He famously said, I have not failed. I just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Right? Different way of looking at it, right? How about this one guy you probably won't recognize? Who is that? Elvis. So let me give you a little bit what it said about him. Elvis failed his music classes in school. He was a social misfit as a boy. He was working as a truck driver while trying to get his recording career off the ground. And after his first uh, paying gig, his manager told him, you're not going anywhere, son. You ought to go back to driving a truck. Right? So, but Elvis persevered. His first recording went nowhere. He tried to join a vocal quartet and was told that he couldn't sing. Is that crazy or what? How about this one? Let's see who knows who this one is. Fred Astaire. Could he dance? Right? And sing? So, check this out. In his mid 30s, because he was a big vaudeville act, whatever, before, tried to get in the movie industry, was booming. He wanted to get into that. And during his first screen test, an executive said, uh, Fred Astaire, he can't sing, he can't act, he's balding, and he can dance a little. Right? And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, last one that I'm going to cover. Uh, anybody know who that is? Yeah, Michael Jordan. And uh, I, I thought this was interesting. He was cut from his high school team uh, when he was high school. He wasn't good enough. And yet he became the greatest basketball player of all time. So a little extra instant. A couple of weeks ago, I heard this, that he was asked if his, uh, ninth, the 1990s Chicago Bulls would be able to beat LeBron James and their team right now. He says, oh, yeah, we could probably beat him. And he goes, by three or four points. And he's like, by three or four points, why do you think it'd be so little? He goes, well, most of us are in our 60s now. <laughs> I thought that was a great response. So uh, uh, anyway, here's a, how many of you know, most of us, especially when you're young growing up, we want to do something amazing, yeah. right? We want to do a, nobody's like, you know what? I just dream of mediocrity. 
I hope I'm just average in everything. That's usually when you're young, you want to be, you want to go to the moon, you want to uh, save the planet, right? You want to do, you know, become president, whatever the situation is. And the Bible, how many of you know, uh, is full of people that accomplish great things. As a, as a young person, how many of you realize there's a reason there's a lot of superhero movies out there? Because we like to envision, oh yeah, I want to be Superman, I want to be Spider-Man, I want to be whatever, man or woman, Superwoman, Wonder Woman, all of those different things. We have big dreams and we want to do that, but when you become a follower of Jesus, guess what? All of a sudden we should switch and we want to be used by God. Does anybody here want to be used by God? Uh, as, as amazing as all that is, we hear stories of missionaries. Don't you love it when they go to a remote village nobody's been to and they tell how the whole village came, became a follower of Christ? You're like, whoa, that's awesome. I want to do that. Or people praying for the sick and they're healed. And, and like I said, the Bible has all kinds of those stories. And we want that. There's something I believe that God puts in us that when you're apart from Christ, it's like really selfish kind of, ooh, I want something for me. Uh, but when you become a believer, that same urge is there to do incredible, unbelievable things. Amen? Amen. And uh, I'll tell you, the other day, Pastor Colleen, we were driving uh, and we were talking about the bucket list. Anybody have a bucket list? All right, a couple of people. Uh, it's things that you want to do before you die. And, and nothing wrong with that. And so she asked me, she goes, what's on your bucket list? And we've talked about this from time to time. And, you know, we mentioned, hey, you know what? One day we would like to go to Ireland. I mean, that's her roots there. And we would like to be able to check that out. Ireland would be cool. Anybody ever been to Ireland? Nobody? How many would you like to go? All right, look at all those hands. See, that's something on there. We'd like to go to Israel one day. That would be cool. Uh, so there's things on the bucket list. Anybody who's got a bucket list item you want to share? Just shout it out to me. The Northern Lights. Joshua wants to go see the, the Northern Lights. You can tell that he teaches a, astronomy. I had to say that slowly. Not astrology, astronomy. So somebody else say one that I hear over here? You've seen him. Yeah, she used to live up in Alaska. She's from. But what about someone else? What's something on your bucket list? The Grand Canyon. That's really not that far. <laughs> That's closer than the Northern Lights. So... Uh, uh, so anybody else? Who's got a bucket list item? Someone from over here. Go on a mission trip. That's a good one. All right. So there's all kinds of things. So we, we transitioned our conversation from bucket list to a spiritual bucket list. You know, and, and let me just say, a lot of times, uh, pastors in their mid-50s or so are starting looking, winding their ministry down, looking for, okay, well, you know what, where are we going to get at and pastor and kind of ride this out until retirement? How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? It, it's just a reality. As a matter of fact, there's a, a guy that we went to college with, and uh, same age as us, he just retired a few months ago because he was a lot wiser with his money than we were. And uh, now he retired from the ministry. I just saw his post the other day. They, he goes, we are full-time RVers now. Sold their house, got an RV, and they're just driving around. He's in his mid-50s. And I'm like, you know what? That's, that's great. But I want to tell you, I still have desires and plans and dreams from God. I still want to accomplish things. We're not looking at winding it down. Let's just ride this out till we get to uh, retirement. Uh, some of you guys know, not everybody maybe, but the church actually owns, and this is my horrible drawing here, we own 10 uh, acres of land uh, just right next to Applebee's is like right here, if you're wondering where it is. Starbucks is not there. It's actually over here, so I really feel like that's an anointed place for us. <laughs> That, uh, that it's going to be that close. But we have that land. And, uh, I, and Colleen asked me, what, what is your spiritual bucket list? I said, you know what? I really, we, you know, we built a church in Texas, and that was wonderful. And then we moved to California. But I said, I would love to be able to see us build another building. And not, not just to build a building for building's sakes. How many of you know that's crazy? Yeah. Only for the purpose, because it's a spiritual. I want to see... Uh, us and Freedom Church make a bigger impact in our community. Amen. Amen. How many of you know we can't do it alone? It takes all of us together. And, and listen, we've heard this since we've been here. Oh, you don't want to build in El Dorado County. Too many loopholes. Is that right, Rick and Betty? <laughs> they, they were supposed to have their house built uh, done in May. Yeah, yeah and uh, still not in it, right? So uh, we're still in the loop. 
They're still in the loop, right? But how many of you know God can master those loopholes? Uh, then you hear, oh, the cost is ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous anywhere, but how many of you know we have a God that is not limited by finances? Amen? So I can't let that... And then I hear people have said this, why would you do something like that? You're not even filling this building up. And, and it's like, we really limit that. How, and I heard, we've heard this, this has been our philosophy for uh, pretty much all of our ministry. You don't minister for what you currently have. You minister for what, peop, what you're believing God for. Right? So if you wait until everything is packed, then it's like, oh man, we got nowhere to go from here. Uh, can I give you an example? We moved to Chico March of 2007. We had about 35 seniors. That was all we had. Uh, we did have a youth group of my three kids, Timothy, Joshua, and Rebecca. That was all there was. But, and we're like, nah, we got to see, we got to begin to attract younger families. What's going on here? Uh, this church is going to die. As a matter of fact, we were there uh, coming back from the men's retreat uh, last Sunday, and there were two people that were in that church still that were there when we got there in 2007. Most of them had passed on, moved away into retirement facility. And uh, listen, if you don't begin to reach out for younger people, how many of you know you eventually die? That's just how it is. So what we did, we got there. We're fresh. We're new. We're surrounded by a bunch of seniors is all. And we said, listen, we've got to get a youth pastor. They could barely scrape together enough money to pay a salary for us. And they're like, wait a minute, how are we going to do that? So we started talking about it and we started taking up faith promises to pay a youth pastor's salary for a year. And a faith promise is what we use for missionaries. We're like, listen, would you give money extra in order to buy it, put a youth pastor's salary, $50 a month, $100 a month, whatever it was, we had enough to actually offer a youth pastor uh, a meager salary. And, uh, and we actually hired him nine months after we got to this church of 35 seniors. And uh, we told our kids about it. And we said, hey, listen, we just hired a youth pastor. And they, were, they probably still remember. They're like, oh, that's exciting. Can we tell our youth group? And we're like, yeah, go ahead. So all three of them huddled together and said, we got a youth pastor. <laughs> you guys remember that? <laughs> I mean, and, and uh, within a year, we had enough younger families coming that paid his salary. And things began to grow. But it's like, if we wait until we need something, how many of you know you're never going to do something? And so you've got to begin to take steps. And I will say, you know, as a board, you know, we have no idea how this is going to happen. I mean, it's a God thing. We are uh, currently have a guy that's going to be doing, uh, what is it? A survey with all the elevations, because that's one of the first steps that we need to take. So uh, we should probably have that probably within the next month. So we're taking steps, but we're not, I want to promise you, we're not going to jump the gun and do something uh, foolish. It's got to be a God thing, right? So we wait for him. So we still have dreams. How many of you realize something like this? And I've got a, I, I've worked on trying to get this little picture. It's got all these little hands. How many of you know that can't be just my vision? Oh, right? It takes everybody to do great things for God. All of us coming together. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So we still have dreams. What about you personally? What about you individually? If you want to be used by God, here's the question that we want to ask. What kind of person do you have to be? What kind of a person is really there? I mean, you can ask your wise Facebook friends that have done their research. How many of you know? Right? Like, I, oh, I've done the research. You can Google this question, and I actually did. Uh, I had a results of 1,950,000,000 results as an answer to that. And just so you know, I didn't read them all. Actually, I didn't read any of them. But because here's the thing, our identity, and this is what we're talking about in Galatians or uh, Ephesians, our identity, finding our true identity in Christ. When you begin to find out who you are in Christ, you become a reflection of Jesus, and then you're automatically going to find God is using you in great ways. Like, how did that happen? So don't look at those other things to find the answer. We use God's word to find the answer to these questions right? God's word. He's our foundation. He's given that. So as we're going through Ephesians, uh, just a quick background. We know the apostle Paul wrote the book and he was in prison in Rome. And his goal was to instruct people on the church. We're going to discover the types of people that God uses and the person that you and I have to be if we're going to be used by God. So I'm going to jump right into this starting uh, chapter three, verse seven. 
He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the, gifts of God, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent... Well, I'm going to break it down, so don't think you've got to memorize all that. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are for your glory. So... That's a lot to put out right there. But how many of you know, at this point, Paul was one of the most influential people in the early church, especially at the time that he wrote this letter. I mean, God helped him to to build the church, to spread the good news. He performed miracles. He wrote a significant portion of the New Testament. Uh, Clearly, Paul uh, had unlocked the key of being used by God, didn't he? He had some insight. So I want to examine this passage a little bit closer, and let's get into it. So verse 7, I'm going to back up. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So we know God's used Paul, right? And like I said, at this time, you know, when Paul first became a follower, nobody thought uh, anything good about him, first of all. But at this point in his life, he had already completed all of his missionary journeys, had written several books. Uh, Now he's nearing closer to the end of his life. He's in prison, but he was a big deal. He was like the man. Like if Paul wrote you a letter, that's like an accommodation right there. Hey, Paul says that I'm good. His word means everything. He was their hero, respected leader, uh, but Paul was not arrogant, was he? As a matter of fact, he chose the lowest position in society to identify himself with. What was the word he used? Servant. I'm a servant. We, we have different ideas. You know, that word itself actually in the Greek mean is uh, where we get our word deacon. And a lot of times, you know, some people, you know, kind of love a big head right about it. And it's like, that means you're a servant. That's really what that word means. It doesn't mean I'm lifted up. It means I'm lowered. As a matter of fact, even pastor is a shepherd, right? And, and we think, oh, yeah, pastor, shepherd, and we left it up. Uh, but really, a shepherd was low in the class back in those days. So God always, how many of you know, to go higher in God's kingdom, you're really going lower? All right? We live in that upside-down kind of world. But Paul's saying, I'm a servant, and, and he says this, uh, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. And I know we've been talking about grace is getting something that you and I don't deserve. And he's basically saying, because of God's grace and his mercy to me, I get to be a servant. Right? How many people, you know, I'll sign up for a CEO, but servant? You mean the lowest position? Uh, You know, you better pay me for that, right? You better give me something like that. Let me just say this. Paul was not just a servant. He was a humble servant. And that's number one in your notes. God uses humble servants. And uh, what's what's the difference between a servant and a humble servant? I mean, you may ask that. And, 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 uh, so I did this in the first service. I might as well here too. So here's the thing. Sometimes after a message, if I happen to give a good message, I've had people, oh, that was a good message. That was great. When I was younger, it used to swell my head up. Now I know it's all God. So I've grown in that. And, uh, but can you imagine if you came up after, maybe God really spoke to you and you said, pastor, that was a really great message. And I just said, I know. Of course it was. I gave it, right? I mean, hey, come on. You know, God speaks to me, and I, and I gave you the word, you know. Or, or imagine, like, you know, after a theatrical production, the actors come on stage and give a big bow. So I wrap this message up, and I come out, and I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you, right? Thank you, you know what, just throw money. How many of you think, like, uh, okay, you know what, that was a really good message, but that guy's a jerk, right? Would you even come back to this church if I started doing that? Right? You're like, I'm like, well, I don't know where everybody's at. I'm so amazing, right? I'm so, here's the thing. Our pride can make the gospel ugly. 
Our arrogance can make even the good news bad news. And so the difference between being a servant and being a humble servant, really, Jesus came in humility. We need to reflect Christ because nobody likes being around prideful people, right? Nobody likes, listen, you may still be able to uh, share the word even in your pride. God will still use it because it's his word. But I want to tell you what, you lose impact, right? Look what uh, Jesus said a couple of times in Luke. Word for word, out of Luke, verse 14 and uh, chapter 14 and ver- uh, chapter 18 says, "For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." How many of you know if Luke wrote this twice because he heard Jesus say it twice? How many of you know Jesus probably said it more than twice? In the three years, he's trying to get through because we all, at one time or another, struggle with pride. How many of you know most people, most drivers on the road think they're the best driver? Right? And everybody else thinks everybody else is an idiot. Right? Oh, look at that idiot. Look at that idiot. And it's like, well, I'm the best driver, right? We always kind of look at ourselves and we like to, I think, naturally elevate ourselves above other people. Whether it's in a workplace, oh, yeah, I'm the best this and I'm the best that. I'm better at this than everybody else. So the reality in the world, the world's way of things, this doesn't make sense, does it? If you're thinking like the world, it's not like you don't get ahead by humbling yourself. No, you get ahead. How do you get ahead in the world? By, you know, pushing your way through, you know, climbing up that ladder. And if you've got to step on a few heads while you're doing it, then you've got to step on a few heads. You've got to list your accomplishments. Uh, you know what? I have this degree and I got that degree. Look at my job history. I've done this. How many of you ever known people that like doing name dropping? Oh, yeah. How many? That's annoying, isn't it? Let's just be honest. I don't know anyone here that does that, but that is annoying. Or, or they get in a crowd and they like to rub shoulders with the important people. Like, oh, you're not important. You're not important. Oh, let me get over here and talk to this guy. Uh, let me tell you, we, we want to build your own brand, put my name out there and all of that. Uh, how many of you have heard the phrase looking out for number one? I, don't, I didn't know where that originated, so I was on Googling it to find out where that came from. And there was actually a song in 1975 from Bachman Turner Overdrive. How many of you guys remember that band? All right. I'd heard of them. I didn't know the song. I listened to it. I didn't like it. Uh, not just because of the word. I just, anyway, whatever. Uh, anyway, he had that song. I grabbed a couple of the verses to uh, share with you. So that was the name of the song, was looking out for number one. But this is what he says. Every night is a different game. We got to work for our fortune and our fame. Success is a ladder. Take a step at a time, and the people will remember your name. Yes, I found out the tricks of the trade. So this is, I think he's singing about himself. Look what he says. And that there's only one way that you're going to get things done. I found out the only way to the top is looking out for number one, and that's me, I'm looking out for number one. Does anybody actually remember that song? No? Oh, a couple of people over here. I didn't remember it, I wouldn't listen to it, Uh, but here's the thing, after I read that, this was my idea of what he just sang. False, right? That is not what God said. Listen, there is a long line of people that want to tell you how wonderful they are, how great they are. I believe there's a lot shorter line of people signing up to be humble. A lot shorter line. But I want to tell you, here's the key to this statement that we're talking about humility. Sometimes we miss it because, you know, we're familiar with the scripture that says pride comes before the fall right? Or destruction. You've been taught, we've all been taught, you know what, if you get too prideful, God's going to humble you. Anybody ever hear that? That's really not what Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus said. He said to humble yourself. That means you do it. That means you make the choice to do it. Don't, and I may just encourage you, don't wait for your circumstances to bring you down. I believe that we need to actively look for ways to humble ourselves. You know, how do you, I mean, really, how do you do that? First of all, we got to stop climbing up on the pedestals. We got to stop, oh yeah, look at me, you know what, I did this and I did that. Somebody tells you a story, maybe somebody tells you a story of something that they did, they're really excited about it, and you're like, oh yeah, you think you did that? Let me tell you what I did. Let me just step on your head and put myself up a little bit higher. How many of you know, that happens, right? Uh, sometimes even in our walk with the Lord, it's like, oh, yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did that years ago. 
Let me tell you this wonderful truth that God showed me. Yeah, I knew it. I already knew that. Listen, we got to get off of that. Look at how Paul describes humility in uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Although he was God, and Jesus was God, 100% God, right? He didn't think of equality of God as something to cling to. He didn't hang on to the fact that he was God. Like when he was, uh, when the, the Pharisees came at him, he's like, you know what, just stop talking, I'm God. Right? He didn't, he didn't do any of that. No, what does it say that he did? Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Some versions say he emptied himself. Like what in the world does that mean? He gave up all of the privileges that he had of being God. And it says this, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I mean, that had to be humiliating, right? It's like he's God and he's being spat upon, uh, beard ripped out, whipped, all of that stuff. But he did it for a reason. He was more than being humble. He basically removed himself from a place of honor and prestige. And then look at what God did. Verse 9. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Isn't that exactly what he said in Luke? If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. But if we exalt ourselves, you know, which one do you want to go? Right. Jesus lowered himself from being God to a slave. And because of that, God the Father used him to save the world. I mean, that's a good trade-off right there. I believe that God still uses humble servants to achieve his plan and purpose in the world today. Amen? How many of you agree with that? All right, so let's look at verse 8. He starts out, Although I'm less than the least of all God's people. Let me just let that sink in for a minute. You're like, come on, this is Paul, right? He's the most significant leader in the church. He's done incredible things for God. Surely, how many of you think there's got to be somebody less than him? All right, somebody that's a little bit less. And I started thinking in the Bible, okay, who is least than Paul? Remember the story out of Acts chapter 20, there was a man named Eutychus. He was sitting in a windowsill. Paul was preaching and he fell asleep, fell out. Paul had to interrupt his service, go down, raise him from the dead, right? Surely Eutychus is less than him. I mean, you couldn't even stay awake for it. I know that Paul went a long time, but it's like, if you're sleeping in the service, you got to be less than Paul, right? I'm glad nobody's sleeping because I wouldn't want to have to pick you out. Like, like, surely somebody. But what did Paul mean right here? How many of you know you have to understand Paul became a great leader in the church? How many of you know he didn't start that way? He didn't start that way. Listen, if you were picking somebody to build the early church, Paul, who was previously known as Saul, would not have even been on your list. He wouldn't have been any, He wouldn't, wouldn't have been in the ballpark. He wouldn't even been in the same state, right? I mean, here's the thing. Paul was an evil man before that. He arrested Christians, had them thrown in jail. He sat and gave his approval to Stephen, the first martyr in the early church. He was an enemy of the gospel. Surely there had to be somebody somewhere that was better than Paul. But here's the great news right here. How many of you know God didn't see Paul for what he was? He saw him for what he could be. Aren't you glad that God looks at us the same way? Not the way other people have seen us. Not the way we even see ourselves. God sees who he wants to do in us. The things that he wants to do. So he has a plan and purpose for Paul. And listen, this is a pattern throughout scripture. And that's number two in my notes. Is that God uses the least likely people. You realize that, right? The least likely to achieve his plans. And and again, that's the exact opposite of how we work. Because if we're going to build a church, I want somebody strong. I want somebody charismatic, somebody that speaks well. I want to get the gifted and talented. As a matter of fact, I'm going back to those high school yearbooks, and I'm going to look for the most successful, right? Most spirited, most whatever. I I want some of the best all around people in my church. Because that's how we're going to build this thing. That's not how God does it. It's not a popularity thing, you know. Uh, uh, if somebody does have popularity, comes to Christ, we want to live. Oh, look, so-and-so became a Christian. Nothing wrong with that. But I believe that God spotlights those that nobody else notices. 
I believe that's who God looked the least qualified, the most unlikely to be used of him. Now, how many of you, I mean, I, I wanna, in our world, maybe in your life, who do you think is the least likely that God would use? I mean, just let your mind think about it. Maybe somebody that's really evil in our society, or, or maybe an outspoken atheist, or someone, maybe somebody at work or your neighborhood, a relative that is so offensive every time you get around them, you're like, man, there's no way God will use them. How about this? How about a politician? How about a politician that would quote the words of Jesus in order to promote abortion? How many of you know that's happened, right? Not getting into that, but you're like, there is no way that God could use that person. But how many of you realize that's exactly what the early church thought of Paul? That's exactly what they thought. There is no way God will ever use Paul or Saul at that time. He hunted down, he killed Christians, number one persecutor, no way God will ever use them. But how many of you know Paul, the one that used to kill Christians, now leading people to Christ? Paul, the persecutor, was now baptizing people into Christ. He used to arrest them and throw them in jail, and now as he's writing this letter in Ephesians, he's in prison because he couldn't stop telling people about how good God was, how good Jesus was. Paul was the least likely person but guess what? God chose him. Amen? I mean, if you imagine, if we start classifying people that we think, God, oh, God will really use that person. If, I, if that person would just become a Christian, uh, watch out because God's going to bring somebody you never thought possible. You know, no way would he ever do that. Uh, and here's the reality. Sometimes we disqualify ourselves from ever being used of God. All right? We don't even need somebody else to disqualify us because we already look, man, look at my past. Uh, I don't have that ability. I'm, I'm too timid. Uh, I'm weak. How many of you know sometimes we decide that God can never use us and we make that decision and don't even let, give God a chance? I want you to consider, and, and, I, and I contemplated this, but uh, I'm going to have a couple of people, I did not prepare them for it, that at one time in their life might have been considered least likely. And I don't, I don't think they would be ashamed to come up here, but would uh, Troy and Charlene, would you guys come up here for a second? I'm going to embarrass them for a second. Because not everybody knows uh, their story. Yes. Come on up here. Yeah, you, you don't have to have shoes on. Yeah, Pastor Colleen takes hers off, but she's from Arkansas, so that helps. <laughs> Come on up here. She knows. So uh, I didn't prepare you guys for this for a reason, because I wanted you to be surprised. Uh, a lot of, some of you guys know some of their story, but do you guys feel like at one time you were least likely to ever be used of God? Yes. So just a uh, just uh, short thing. Tell, tell where you were at when you were at your lowest. Give it to him, Troy. <laughs> at my lowest? Um... I was doing 29 to life in prison. The Lord gave me another chance at life, and he's been in charge ever since then. Could y'all hear that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, put your microphone up closer to your mouth. There you go. Um, my lowest point in life, I had been homeless on the streets and strung out on methamphetamines for 20 years. And... That's when God sought me out. And I am so grateful that he sought me out. He left the 99 to come find me. And what has, here, let's, what, what has God done in you guys' life since then? For both of you. That's why I have them both up here. Um, I've got two years sober on methamphetamines. I'm working full time. I'm not homeless. He has restored all my relationships with my family members, with my kids. Um, <laughs> Troy and I went through a really rough time and it was really bad and turns out God had ordained us to be together Amen. and now you're married After 13 years we got married but not till Christ right here in this church worked on right us individually for two years straight and now do you want to say anything else Troy go ahead Like, what is God doing in your life now? How is God using you? Um, right now, God is, uh, he's got me in charge of the, the ready labor for Christ's life. Um, 
I've had several job offers for more money, and I've been praying on it. And God has me with Christ-like for some reason. And That's right. For whatever it is, He hasn't revealed it to me yet. It's all in His timing. Amen. Amen. Give them a hand, because uh, sometimes they're over there, and you guys, those of you that know them, but those of you that don't, it's like, they were, we were all, how many, anyone else ever feel like you were least likely? Least likely? Listen, you don't have to be, have hit the bottom of the barrel, you know, uh, prison, drugs, sometimes we think, oh, that's least likely. Can I give you a little bit of my story? I remember when I was headed to Bible college at 19 years old. Uh, I was at my best friend's house, and my best friend, his dad was a deacon at the church. It was a 500-member church, and he had known me. I was best friends with his son since third grade. So he knew Henri, a smart aleck me for many years that wasn't always the best influence on his son. I have no idea why he let him spend the night at my house and uh, me come over there. But he knew me all those years. And then I became a, I became a Christian, started going to the same church they were. And uh, I remember as I was getting ready to leave for Bible college, and he was, he was a great guy, funny guy. His name was Bobby Rotan. And uh, he just kind of looked at me, and uh, he quoted a verse out of the Bible as I'm getting ready to leave. 1 Corinthians 1.27. This is a great verse. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, I would have been encouraged if I would have heard that whole verse. But he only quoted the first part to me. That's what he said. He goes, oh, yeah, well, he goes, you're going to Bible college. I see God really does choose the foolish things. And he stopped right there. And let me tell you, I didn't really know much of God's word at that time. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest, I was a little offended. Right? Like, what? You know? Uh, even though I knew he was joking, but when I really be understood what this verse was, I had to agree. God really does use the least likely. He really does. Uh, why does God use the, likely, uh, the least likely? Why doesn't he uh, just use only successful people? Well, I want to give this whole verse in context to the, those that are around it. Starting at verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. How many of you know God knows what he's doing? And it says, brothers, let me just add sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human uh, standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You know what he's basically telling them? He's like, hey, listen, some of you guys were just dumb. All right? You weren't popular. You came from the other side of the tracks. You weren't born into the right family. You were basically the lowest in society, that's who you were. But then what it says, but God, everybody say, but God. God. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. And then verse 31, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And that's the awesome thing. What I realize is that when God uses me, when God uses you, guess what? He gets the glory, right? He gets the glory. And let me tell you, think about it. People that knew your past, what do they think about you now? I don't know. That, that guy will never, that woman will never. Uh, and I think about my life growing up, uh, people would have never imagined that I would be doing what I am now. Even people that knew me in Bible college, so I'm going to give you another little story because uh, in 2000, we became uh, lead pastors in Giddings, Texas. Uh, it had been 11 years since I had left college. I served time in the military. Then we were seven years associate pastors in Colorado Springs. And I remember calling up the person that's above me, our, our sectional presbyter. I called their church to introduce myself. Uh, his secretary answered the phone, and uh, she happened to be somebody that we went to college with. I didn't know who she was on the other side of the phone. Uh, we went to college. We worked at the same restaurant together. She was at our wedding, so she knew us pretty well. And I didn't recognize her voice for whatever reason. I introduced myself as the new pastor at Giddings First Assembly. And she goes, are you the Scott Williams from Southwestern about 10 years ago? 
And I said, yeah, and her name's Mary Lee. She's probably not watching, but she said, she goes, I'm Mary Lee. And I said, oh, yeah. And she goes, and the next words, I promise you, she started laughing. Ha, you're a pastor? <laughs> and my self-esteem just shot through the roof, right? And I, let me tell you, I'm okay with it because I know, I know that who I am is only because of God. I mean, if I was on the other line of that phone, I'd be like, ha, ah, yeah, you're right. I know. I, I hear, I remember talking to another missionary that we went to school with, and I told him that story. He goes, she did the same thing to me. <laughs> I identified she had the ministry of encouragement right there. So, uh, uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just want to tell you guys, every one of us is a walking testimony of him. If God can use us then man, all, all, all bets are off, right? Look at what Paul says after that. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and so it was with me. He's like, I was that foolish one. He goes, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquent or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love this. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. Amen. When you walk in humility, when you walk with that humility, you're allowing God's power to be a demonstration through you. And guess what? People's faith is not on you, it's on God. I would much rather that. Amen. Amen. So let's, uh, let's finish verse 8 and 9. I read the first part already. Although I'm less than the least of God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul was, here's the thing. Paul saw it as a privilege to be used of God. And I'm just going to say, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but how many of you know today in almost every church, it's like, oh, we need people to help here. We need people, well, I don't have the time, you know, I got other things to do. Oh, wait a minute, I got to go wash my clothes, right? We give excuses to not be used by God. And it's like, no, God wants to use us. Paul saw it as a privilege. He didn't see it as a task. He didn't see it as a duty. He was honored that God would let him preach even to the Gentiles. And if you remember Pastor Colleen's message last week, if you were here, the Gentiles were the despised people. You know, hey, listen, I'm trying to build my ministry. I don't want to minister to those Gentiles. Give me some of the Jews. I want to, I want to minister there. I want, I want the upper class ministry, right? He was honored to be able to preach whatever God wanted to use him at, whatever it was. And so Paul, he goes on and he gives him some instruction out of verse 10 and 11. He says his intent, this is God's intent. That now, through the church, everybody say through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. How many of you know that's the demons? I'm letting you know God's doing a work. But it says, according to his eternal purpose, God's purpose, which he accomplished in Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, God uses me. He wants to use you. Uh, He wants us to fulfill his plan. But guess what? He does it through the church. I know people have issues with the church. Let me let this be a surprise to you. How many of you know there is not a perfect church around? There's not a perfect church around. And I know, listen, oh, I like this, I like that. I wish it was cooler, hotter. I wish pastor didn't talk so long or whatever, right? There's always been problems in the church because there's a bunch of imperfect people here. This may be another newsflash. How many of you know I'm an imperfect pastor? I know, that's a shocker, right? My kids were like surprised right at that, right? But here's, here's what I want us to understand. He says it's through the church. You, can be, uh, you don't have to be a part of a church to get saved. You don't even have to go to church to make it to heaven. But I will tell you this, and I believe this with all my heart, you have to be a part of his church if you're going to be used of God to accomplish God's plan and purpose. Not because I said so, but because his word says so. Through the church, the wisdom and power of God is going to be demonstrated in the world. Through an imperfect church. Through a place where somebody said something mean to me. 
You know what? You grow up out of that and become a disciple and a mature believer. Don't worry about all that. Just realize that's how God works. Amen? Let me move on. Verse 12. In him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Think about this. How did Paul, the least likely candidate, accomplish all that he did for God? How did he do it? He did it in him and through faith in him. How are you going to accomplish anything for God? In him and through faith in him. Not on anything that you can do, not on your accomplishments. As a matter of fact, how many of you know before Paul became a follower of Christ, he had a lot of accomplishments. He was very qualified in the Jewish thing. He, and he actually listed in Philippians, he listed all the wonderful things that he had done. All of the accomplishments, his big resume was there. And then he goes on to say this in uh, verse 7. He goes, I once saw all these things were valuable. All of my accomplishments, all of the great things that I've done, all of the right training, right schooling, right, all of that, I thought they were all valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And he says, yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. I like the King James as, as dung. Right? I don't have to tell you what that means, but uh, so that I could gain Christ. Now, it doesn't mean other things aren't important, but if I'm relying on these other things to put me in a place of success, I'm relying on the wrong things. I'm putting my hope in the wrong thing. My trust is only in him and through faith in him, and that's number three, that God uses people that trust him. Right? If you're, ba- if you're trusting your education or your accomplishments or your money, your bank account, you're trusting in the wrong thing. I, I love what uh, David said in Psalms 20. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen. Amen. How many of you know you can't trust people? I mean, you can trust people into an extent of, you know. But I'm saying in general... If you're trusting people to help you accomplish the things, you're going to come up short. How many, every one of us fail at meeting somebody else's expectations at one time or another. right? Have you ever tried to meet everybody's expectation of you? Does it work? Or does it become exhausting? Right? It hurts. It hurts. It's like, okay, here's the reality. Then this is maybe played out in your life. Oh, I'm going to make my sister happy, right? Spin that plate. Oh, you know what? She's happy. Oh, I'm going to go over here and make my brother happy. Spin that plate. You know, oh, I'm going to make my mom and dad happy. Spin that plate. And you know what's going to happen is eventually this one's going to fall. And then that one's going to fall. Then you're like, oh, but I got to make this, I got to make my employer happy. I got to make this person happy. Uh, Listen, you're going to fail and people are going to fail you. It's just don't get upset. Don't get surprised when somebody doesn't meet your expectation. Just remind yourself, you know what? I probably haven't met other people's expectations. It's okay. We all fall short, right? Many things. So I can't trust that. I definitely can't trust the government. I heard, oh no, right? Because the government is going to fail you. You can't really even just your job. I got a great job. You know, this is my job. But guess what? Anybody ever lose your job? Maybe you got fired or you had to get let go. Uh, That happens. But you know what? My abilities, I've really got a great personality this. That may not be enough. You trust in all of that stuff. Here's what I have realized. Misplaced trust results in disappointment, heartache, and failure. When you put your trust in the wrong things, but if we put our trust in Him, if we put our trust in Him, what does it say? That we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that good? What does that mean? What does that look like? It means I can come to God with anything. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter. There's no problem too big or too small that God is not willing to intervene. I can come with confidence that he is more than able to meet all of my needs. Amen? And when you approach God that way, how many of you know your prayers are different? It's not like, oh, God, I've got this need, and I don't know if you can do anything about it, but, you know, this is this. You know, you just kind of come measly up to the Lord instead of like, God, I come to you, and I am confident that you are more than able to meet that need. How many of you know there's a difference in your faith, right? And why? Because you trust him. 
You trust him. Listen, if you put trust in me to give you a million dollars, you're going to be sadly disappointed. But how many of you know God can do it? If that's something that was really needed and not just a want, God can do it, right? As we're getting on, this would be a great place to stop right here, right? After, okay, God, God uses humble, most unlikely people that trust him. I can do that. But there's another part that we don't want to miss that Paul talks about. And you may not like this one as much, but verse 13, he says this, And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory, right? What, what did Paul mean by suffering? Was that metaphorically, you know, or was that literal suffering? Yeah, he was literally in a suffering situation. Paul wasn't suffering. Let me just say this. Paul wasn't suffering because somebody was mean to him. Right? <laughs> Man, they said something mean to me. They said something not nice to me. Come on, right? We've all said mean things to people, been told mean things, and it's like, man, is that all you got? Right? I can handle that, right? Paul wasn't suffering because somebody didn't put pickles on his cheeseburger. I heard that somewhere the other day. It wasn't any of that. Paul was in a Roman prison. He was in prison. Let me tell you, I've seen, I don't know who the artist is, but I was looking it up because I've seen this. You've probably seen this picture. This is supposed to be a picture of Paul in prison uh, writing the letter, the epistles, right? He's got his desk. He's writing the Bible, and this is what interests me. How does he have a Bible and he's supposed to be writing it? I don't know who wrote, I don't know who painted this, but I mean, how many of you have seen this picture before? I'm not the only one. I want to tell you that Paul's cell was not this cozy comfort, where's my nightlight, you know, bring me my coffee or my tea or whatever. No, this is an actual picture of a Roman prison back then. That's a historical one. You know what? There is no uh, soft mattress there. Where's my mypillow.com thing at right there? I have no idea what this hole is for, but I can imagine... That was not comfortable. Paul was literally in a place of suffering. It wasn't cushy situation that was going on then. And, uh, and that really uh, leads me to this. Number four, God uses people who are faithful in suffering. Let me ask you this question. What are you going through right now? Anybody in an uncomfortable situation right now? You don't like it. Wish things were different. This is challenging. Uh, maybe you wouldn't call it suffering, but you would definitely say it was very uncomfortable. What does it mean to be faithful in suffering? Well, let me ask this question. What do we normally do when we're in a place of suffering or uncomfortableness? That, what did I hear? Sleep? On that? <laughs> what about, what, did I hear someone else? Complaining, right? Come on, that's our go-to complaining. I don't like this. I don't like that. This chair is not comfortable. This situation, I don't like that. I mean, that is just our natural, I think our default. When you're in a place that you don't like, we complain about it, right? It just happens. But what did Paul do? From the very same, let me go back, the very same prison cell that he's writing this, he wrote the book of Philippians. And there was a, while he was in change, he actually says this. He says, you know, I'm in change for the Lord. And there are people that are out there that are preaching the gospel for good reasons. But he says, some people are preaching it in order to stir up trouble for me. So he's saying, I'm suffering. And these suckers are out here preaching stuff and making things more difficult for me. I would complain about that. Anybody else? If somebody's doing something to cause more trouble for you, wouldn't you be like, you know what? I'm not only going to complain about it. I'm going to do something about it, right? Meet me out by the shed, right? Those are those things that we think about that are going on. But what does Paul do? It says that uh, uh, verse 18, he goes, that doesn't matter. They're preaching bad motives, good motives. He goes, whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached. And I love this. Either way, I rejoice. And then what does he say? So he's saying, I rejoice now, but I'm going to continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me and the spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. What a wonderful philosophy. How do I get that? He said, you know what? Right now I choose to rejoice. I don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. I don't know how more difficult things are going to get, but you know what? I'm going to continue to rejoice because I trust in God and him and my faith in him. And I know somehow this is going to lead to my deliverance. 
And if you know the rest of the story of Paul, we don't know exactly how he died, but we know he never got out of that jail cell. That's where he, and he did, guess what? He got his deliverance, right? We don't know what it's going to look like. Maybe it's here on this side of heaven. Maybe it's on the other side. Uh, but let me tell you, he may have been in prison, but he was still free in his mind. There are a lot of people that are free in the world, but they're enslaved in their mind. So he knew he was able to rejoice over that. And then he tells us, that's me. And he's looking at, he wraps up Philippians when chapter four, he tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And can I just say, because I believe this, and this is important. I want you to listen. Until you learn how to rejoice in difficult situations and the circumstances of life, you will always limit how much God's going to be able to use you. Does that make sense? As long as I, my default is complaining and not rejoicing, then, then yes, God will still use you, I believe, to an extent, but it's going to be very limited. And listen, I know this isn't easy to rejoice in those moments, is it? I don't think it was easy for Jesus to carry the cross. I don't think it was easy for Paul to rejoice while in a prison cell. But I believe this, that the people that make a difference for God know how to move past their temporary difficulties in life and look towards eternal things. How do we do that? We keep our eyes on Jesus. Was it say in Hebrews, the author, the perfecter of our faith? If I just start looking at my circumstances, man, I don't like this. I don't like paying $6 a gallon for gas. Anybody see it go up? That's a reason to complain. No, it isn't, because my eyes are on Jesus. He's my provider, whether somebody gives me free gas or I pay $20 a gallon. Then I'll be riding a horse. But uh, I believe to be used of God, we've got, we've got to walk in that humility. Lord, I don't want, I don't want pride. I don't know about you, but that stupid pride knocks on my door all the time. Anybody else? Lord, I want to, let me choose to humble myself. And let me remember, you know, you guys see me at this point in my life. You didn't see me 30-something years ago. You'd have been like, nah, not that guy. <laughs> not that guy. But I know God uses the most unlikely. And so I have been on a journey, and I'm still on this journey to say, God, I want to trust you more. I want to trust you more. I, I would like to say that 100% of my trust is totally in him, but every now and then I still find that I start putting it in other things. Anybody else with me on that? Lord, help me to learn to trust you completely. And Lord, help me to learn to rejoice in the difficulties and in the suffering of life. Can I have everybody stand? I'm excited about this message because I know, I know God is using us, but I believe God wants to use us even more. He wants to use you even more. He wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you to bring other people to Christ. And I know that in our own self, it's not going to happen. We've got to get on his team with that, right? I mean, that's the first step. If I'm, if I'm not even a follower of Christ, I'm not going to be used of Christ, right? So can we just make that a moment right there? If, if you're here today, maybe if there's somebody watching online and you're like, man, I'm not even on Team Jesus yet. I've not given my life to him. Or maybe you did years ago and you know you have drifted away. How many of you know it's very easy to come back? So if you're here today, can I have every head bowed, every eye closed? If you just say, Pastor, I want to make a fresh commitment and a fresh start with Jesus today. Can I just have you raise your hand? Amen. Amen. I see several hands. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you are the good Father. Lord, that when we come home, your arms are wide open. Lord God, you're ready to shower us with blessings. Lord, that's the kind of God you are. You love us, oh God. And so, Lord, as today, as several hands raised, maybe some online, Lord God, Father, we, we just stay, and I'm just going to encourage you with your own words. Just tell God, God, I love you. I'm coming back to you. I'm making a fresh start in you today. Making a fresh commitment to you today. Lord, I want to be on Team Jesus. Thank you for that. 
And if you're here today and maybe there's some of those other areas, maybe you're struggling in an area, I'm not going to tell you, man, you've got to be spiritual and rejoice in the Lord always. But I'm going to tell you, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. So there's going to be a battle that you're going to have to work through with your own emotions, with your own circumstances. It's going to be something that you're going to have to get before the Lord and ask the Lord, Lord, teach me to trust you that you're in the midst of this so that I can begin to actually rejoice in this. Doesn't mean the situation's going to be any different at that moment, but guess what? You're going to be different. You're going to be different. So if you're struggling with a situation, and I want to pray for you today. If you're struggling, you're having a hard time rejoicing, just say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I'm, I'm in a situation, and I need to learn how to rejoice. If that's you, amen. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you. We can trust you in all things. Lord, in all things, we can trust you. So Lord, today... There are several that raise their hand. They're, they're in a struggle right now. They're in something, maybe it's not comfortable, maybe it's persecution, maybe, maybe it really is suffering. So Lord, even as Paul, Lord, as we think about Paul in that prison, Lord, as we think about you carrying that cross, Lord, your word says, for the joy set before you, you endured that cross. Lord, help us to get off our eyes off of the temporary, off the momentary, off the pain and suffering that we may be going now, Lord God, and look further down the road. Because, Lord, you really are doing a better work in us. Make us more like you. Help us to learn to have joy in the midst of the trial. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, as we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.